The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. I'm going to um, turn it over to um, Sherry Wolf, who is the author of Sexuality and Socialism as, and is also an associate editor of the International Socialist Review. I'm going to do something I don't, um, there's so many wires. Um, I'm going to do something, uh, it's technology, it frightens me. Uh, I'm going to do something I don't ordinarily um, do with my talks, and um, I'm going to wear a tutu and sing the praises of Ronald Reagan. Um, no, I'm actually, I'm actually going to read uh, some, of the, some of the talk, which I, I rarely do, but, uh, because if I don't, I'll never cover all the territory politically I want to, and you'll be mildly entertained, but you won't learn anything. Um, so, uh, but I will do a dramatic reading, Queers Love Drama. So, see, we'll do a dramatic reading, and then I'll interrupt myself and tell stories. Um, I, I, I want to start um, this, this talk, and people are like, what the hell is Sex Wars about? Um, we'll get there. Somewhere it will come out. Uh, I, I, I'm actually I'm a huge fan of Hollywood movies from the 40s and 1950s, and it's quite telling that the portrayal of idealized bodies uh, and the behavior and erotic desires of that era bear a striking contrast to our own. Um, the iconic female figure of the 1950s, of course, was none other than Marilyn Monroe. Of course, she was perceived as a sort of quintessence of femininity uh, and American beauty. She was blonde. She was voluptuous. She was sexually alluring and unthreatening and acted about as stupid as a woman could act. It was an act, I assure you. She was married to Arthur Miller, the uh, playwright, uh, author of The Crucible. I don't think she was a dum-dum. I think that was... Uh, Hollywood, um, but she. But if you look at her physically, she. You know, the woman was. You know, somebody my mom would probably describe as a little zoftig. Um, you know, she was like a size 12, not the idealized bodies of today's um, actresses. Um, you know, the male screen idols of the 50s, of course, were people like Rock Hudson, uh, Humphrey Bogart, William Holden. They all had these. They were incredibly tall. They had these sort of rugged faces. They had the, they had the little tushes and just sort of. Um, but they weren't muscular. They, they weren't fit in the way, um, you know, you look at somebody like Jimmy Stewart taking off his shirt in, like, rear window, and you're like, hmm, whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, but they, they, were, they were really self-assured, you know. They were really self-assured and, and rugged, but none of, them, uh, none of them would have been fit by today's um, Hollywood kind of standards. And their attitudes towards female leads would be uh, certainly considered and seen today as grossly sexist and controlling. Um, and, and if you think about it, since World War II um, uh, ended 65 years ago, our notions of sex, of gender, and of sexuality have undergone enormous transformations. The rise in the United, of the United States to the position of uh, a global and economic military behemoth, an empire stronger than any other in history, was accompanied by ideological shifts and scientific changes that have altered our physiques, our self-perceptions, and our erotic choices and desires. As the United States fought to gain and hold on to global hegemony through cold and hot wars abroad, it launched a repressive ideological assault on the home front, including sex wars, to establish behavior norms, I would argue, for the smooth functioning of empire. 
As a result, in many ways, we are physically and sexually transformed from our grandparents' generation. And yet the predominance of certain sex and gender norms that emerged in that era continue to define and repress all of us. I want to discuss a little bit about what we can learn from the post-war sex years, that is, the, social, the, the sex wars, rather, of those years, which really what I mean by that is the social and legal policing of our intimate lives that are periodically punctuated by these kind of moral panics. Also, I'll lay out what socialists argue is needed to shake off these asphyxiating norms, to end these sex wars once and for all, and to create a society in which our sex, our gender, and our sexuality are truly liberated. I want to first define some terms, because I've been, I, ever since the, the book came out a year ago, I've been on this sort of like whirlwind tour, um, sort of like if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium, uh, kind of moments. And, I, 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 and people ask, you know, what the hell is the difference between sex and gender, for example? Um, sex really refers essentially to biological differences, which we'll talk about themselves, are a little bit more ambiguous than many of us are taught to think. Um, and gender describes the characteristics that a society or culture delineates as either masculine or, or feminine. Um, as some of my transgender friends like to say, sex is below the belt and gender is above the shoulders. Um, and uh, whereas, of course, sexuality refers to our erotic sex preferences, whether you, you know, like girls or boys, one at a time or many or furry animals or your left hand or gizmos or whatever the hell that is, that's your sexuality or nothing. There's asexuals. I noticed the asexuals marched in the march the first alienated human beings, but that's a debate we can have. Um, and, and, and sex wars, you know, these sex panics um, are the moral crusades that lead to crackdowns on, on those perceived as sort of sexual outsiders. Um, before I move on to discuss specifically the post-war sex wars, I, I want to lay out a Marxist case very quickly, I'll rapidly run through it, um, for the social construction of our gender behavior, our sexuality, and even to some degree, even to some degree, our physical sex. Because once you grasp the dynamic impact of social forces on our intimate lives, it's easier to comprehend the fact that challenging sex, gender, and sexuality norms cannot be separated from the wider struggles for social and economic justice. So just to sort of lay out a case for social um, construction, as I, I argue in the book, in Sexuality and Socialism, historical evidence confirms that what we define today as homosexual behavior has existed for at least thousands of years. And it's logical to assume, assume that homosexual acts have been occurring for as long as human beings have been on the planet, for some 100,000 years or so in our current form. But it took the Industrial Revolution of the late 19th century to create the potential for vast numbers of ordinary people to live outside of the nuclear family allowing the modern gay, lesbian, and bisexual identities to be born. And not until the late 20th century did some gender-variant people begin to identify themselves as transgender, though people who have defied modern Western con concepts of gender-appropriate behavior have existed throughout uh, human history and, uh, and throughout, in many ways, uh, different cultures. And the systematic oppression of LGBT people, as it is experienced in most contemporary Western societies, is also fairly, a fairly recent phenomenon in human history. It's not to argue that there was somehow a, a sort of sexual paradise before the late 19th century, hardly. Um, but prior to capitalism, humans existed with uh, restrictions on certain kinds of sexual behavior. Legal prohibitions and social taboos from antiquity through the pre-capitalist era existed in many cultures on the basis of sex acts. 
often denouncing non-procreative sex without the condemnation or even the conception of sexual identity as an intrinsic or salient feature of someone's identity. That was not conceivable. People were simply sexual. They weren't, they didn't have a sexuality. Contemporary industrial societies really created the possibility for men and women to identify themselves and live as gays and lesbians. While previous class societies prohibited certain sex acts, the rising capitalist state and its defenders in the fields of medicine, law, and academia stepped in to define and control human sexuality in ways previously unimagined. These 19th century professionals reflected the interests and prejudices of a rising middle class. With economic growth and development came the need for higher levels of education and more kinds of jobs, which extended adolescence and removed teenagers from many occupations, thus rendering the social interaction between unrelated adults and children. Medical professions aiming to legitimize their fields pathologized masturbation. Masturbation was a very bad thing in Victorian era. Very bad, because blindness and acne. Um, it's true. Um, well, I mean, it's not true, but it's true that that's what they wrote. Um, it, it encouraged, they encouraged uh, age of con consent laws. They pressed for higher minimum ages for marriage, all the rest of that kind of stuff. Homosexual relations between adults and so-called innocent minors. I haven't met any of them, but innocent minors were outlawed and juveniles were rendered asexual. No less a figure than Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychiatry at the turn of the 20th century, theorized and popularized the problem of homosexuality while transforming heterosexuality, in his words, into the norm we all know without ever thinking much about. Moder most, obvi most obviously, our conceptions about gender roles have changed radically from one society to another and from one historical period to the next. You need watch only... One episode of Mad Men, I think, um, to grasp uh, just how uh, boorishly sexist men were in the early 1960s, 1960s um, <laughs> Freudian slip perhaps, uh, uh, you know, in the sort of Marilyn Monroe-like, you know, uh, feminine ideals of passivity and sexual lore and all the rest of that. It's a great little time capsule of a show, uh, in my opinion, um, and therefore they make you pay more for it. Um, <laughs> Fucking capitalism. Can't even, can't even get entertained, you know, on, on, the, on the tube. Even our, our bodies have been radically transformed by our changing material conditions. You think of modern female athletes like the Williams sisters, like Serena and Venus. Uh, not only have powerful, athletic, chiseled bodies, but their appearances are considered beautiful, which would have been inconceivable one generation ago, especially for black women. Advances in nutrition, training, and civil rights, in addition to their individual talents, created the potential for two dark-skinned black women to become the global tennis giants that they are today. In addition, medical science has long acknowledged the existence of millions of people whose bodies combine anatomical features that are conventionally associated with either men or women. These intersex individuals, estimated at one birth in every 2,000 in the United States alone, are legally operated on by pediatricians who force traditional norms of genitalia appearance on newborn infants, often rendering them incapable of experiencing sexual pleasure later in life. The physical reality of intersex people calls into question the fixed notions we are taught to accept about men and women. Intersex people challenge not only society's construction of gender roles, but compel us to examine the concept that sex itself is constructed, confined, and forced to fit into a tiny, tidy male-female binary. It appears that even our physical sex, and not just how we comport ourselves, is far more ambiguous and fluid than previously conceived. 
Socialists argue that what human beings have constructed, they can also tear down. It's not that social constructionists like myself believe that humans are merely blank slates upon which society makes its mark, but instead we believe that there is a complex interplay between nature and environment and that much of what we are taught to believe is simply natural and biologically determined is not. A socialist society must be one in which people are liberated to engage in whatever sexual gratification they desire, so long as no other person is harmed. It is a society that no longer must pound into us all the confining and conforming gender and sex models. From the vantage point of socialists like myself, ending the material conditions of class and imperial competition would necessarily involve the overthrow of the sexual and gender order that exists to prop up capitalism. Now I want to move on to what is popularly known as, and there's a brilliant book out there in Haymarket known as The Lavender Scare. Prior to the Depression, sexual relations between men and women were undergoing huge shifts. In the 1920s, men and women were no longer marrying relative strangers. Instead, something known as companionate marriage. In other words, you liked the person you married. You might even be attracted to the person you married. In which romance and sexual pleasure were expected came to be the norm, especially for the new middle class. American capitalism no longer required an ethic of endless work and ascetism in order to accumulate the capital to build an industrial infrastructure. Instead, Corporate America needed consumers, and advertising came into its own in the 1920s, with madmen consciously striving to incite purchasing desire. Along with that came a new concept of womanhood, which emphasized a woman's sexual allure for the first time. And women's appearance and demeanor were shaped by her new role as sex object and doting wife. All that largely collapsed in the 1930s. The enormous economic and social upheavals of the Depression built mass left-wing parties of socialists and communists that were key to building enormous trade unions and challenging racial segregation. The war itself tore apart racial, sexual, and gender norms by throwing the whole of society behind a war effort that raised blacks' expectations for equality, shifted women's roles from home into the workplace, and created a sexual bonanza for budding gays and lesbians. It is the origin of San Francisco as a gay mecca. <laughs> Basically, all the faggots getting thrown out of the military stayed in the port town. Why the hell would you ever go back to Kansas? Um, I mean, the town is gorgeous. Um, it is. Uh, okay, we'll move on. Uh, nothing shook up the sexual consciousness of post-war American society like the release in 1948 and 1953 uh, of the Kinsey reports on American male and female sexual behavior. Fifty percent of 10,000 men surveyed admitted erotic feelings at some point toward other men. Thirty-seven percent had had sex with men. Four percent claimed to be gay. Of the women surveyed, 28 percent admitted erotic feelings toward other women, while 13 percent said that they had had sex with women, and about 2 percent said that they were lesbians. Well, at least somebody was lying. Um, <laughs> and by the way, I, I, I only realized this recently. He only surveyed white people. Nobody who was non-white was surveyed for the Kinsey Report. Interesting. Uh, Alfred Kinsey um, said that given the predominance of homophobia, his results indicated, quote, such activity would appear in the histories of a much larger proportion of the population if there were no social constraints. Kinsey's study gave public expression to the reality of a growing gay minority in the United States. This was to have profound, a profound impact on gays' ability to mobilize for their rights. Gays in the U.S. went from complete isolation to developing an awareness of themselves as an oppressed class of people in the immediate post-war period. 
If the war opened up a vast space for the development of a gay community, the post-war period witnessed concerted attempts to close that space. The shifting needs of the American empire, which emerged from the war a superpower, did in fact create both the condition for heightened repression and sowed the seeds of opposition. There were strong economic and social incentives for ratcheting up harassment and legal discrimination against gays after the war. With U.S. industry churning out more than 60% of all manufactured goods in the world, the need for higher birth rates to staff the labor force and military raised the idealization of the nuclear family to new levels. America's new industrial prowess brought household appliances and a marketing blitz unknown to previous generations of workers. Women were driven out of the industrial jobs they held during the war. White women were told to go back home, put on house dresses, and make babies, while black women were, me went, were meant to return to their pre-war jobs as low-wage domestic servants. Gone were women's practical square-shouldered androgynous fashions of the 40s. In came the frilly dresses with exaggerated busts and hyper-feminine lines of the 1950s, like what I wear. Unlike the previous image of the working-class male, who in the 30s unionized, took political action, and went on strike, a new masculine domesticity was encouraged. Sociologists like C. Wright Mills dissected corporate America's drive to create organization man, an obedient team player who assiduously followed the rules of the corporate structure, bowed to authority, and sought domestic security while eschewing confrontation and struggle. The new medium of television was used to help promote a suburban family man, an avid consumer in shows like Father Knows Best and Ozzie and Harriet and Leave It to Cleaver, Leave It to Beaver, Beaver Cleaver, Cleaver Beaver. I did watch that show. It was on, I mean, in reruns, reruns. <laughs> I hate that whenever you talk about a period, people think you lived through it, you know? It's like, how the fuck old do you think I am? Um, it's just, my hair is the oldest part of me. Um, uh, one historian put it, Cold War political discourse tended to position Americans who protested the rise of organization man or who rejected the post-war American dream of owning a home in the suburbs as homosexuals and lesbians who threatened the nation's security. A new warrior was created, strong, silent, emotionally unexpressive, sometimes angry, and alienated heterosocial male. He had to marry, have children, objectify women, and hate gays. That was the rule. One fascinating insight, I thought it was fascinating at least, by a fellow by the name of Gilbert Hurt, who wrote a book called Moral Panics, Sex Panics. I think it's out there as well. And this is what he wrote. He said, quote, the extraordinary fact of the then two superpowers is how uncannily their, so, their gender roles mirrored aspects of the reproductive purity and anti-gay bias of the Nazis, Soviet masculinity under Stalin, and American masculinity under, under General and then President Eisenhower were alike in more ways than they differed. Very true. This heightened emphasis on the nuclear family was part and parcel of an era of political reaction in the United States. The launching of the Cold War with the Soviet Union brought with it an anti-communist witch-hunted home known as McCarthyism. But even before the electoral rise of Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy, whose name came to symbolize an era of conformity and hostility to dissent, Democratic President Truman, who was FDR's heir, he was a, a Democrat, signed the Miller Sexual Psychopath Law. They all sound very menacing. Miller Sexual Psychopath Law in 1948. The act substantially increased the penalties for sexual crimes in the District of Columbia, and it was the first time sodomy in the United States was defined to mean, and this is their words, any penetration, no matter how slight, <laughs> of, 
of the mouth or anus of one person with the sexual organs of another. These people have a lot of time on their hands. Um, a pervert elimination campaign, the official name, uh, was started as an unprecedented federal program to harass and arrest men known in, in known cruising areas. The Depression-era New Deal programs that were followed by the war had massively increased the federal government's employment roles and Washington, D.C.'s population. The civil service became the first large sexually integrated white-collar bureaucracy in the country. D.C.'s need for clerical workers led to a federal workforce in that city that was 60% female, and they were mandated by law to receive equal pay for equal work, almost unheard of anywhere in this country at that time, and sort of unheard of today. The federal civil service became a magnet for young women seeking opportunities outside of traditional marriage and as a result became a huge attraction for lesbians and anyone else seeking an unconventional lifestyle, including, of course, gay men. As part of a Republican attack on the expansion of the welfare state over the previous 20 years, young women, men, young women and men who worked in the State Department and lived single lives became the targets of a lavender scare, which spread first throughout the federal and then state government agencies. In the midst of a developing Cold War with the Soviet Union, the Republicans saw an opportunity to get back into power by questioning the manliness and loyalty of the New Deal brain trusters who were derided as college-educated crackpots, communists, and queer intellectuals. Basically, the enemy in all of this propaganda was the communist, the Jew, and the gay. Me. <laughs> they had a point. Uh, the aim was to drastically cut the rising cost of government services and end the expansion of the welfare state. In the eyes of conservatives, the New Deal programs needed to be gutted, and they are articulated in moral and gendered terms. Unmarried women who dominated the secretarial pools and low-level bureaucracies were attacked as a democracy, having usurped the role of men in the workplace, the argument went, went they were now doing it in the bedroom as well. Though not a single example was ever discovered of a homosexual American citizen who revealed state secrets, gays and lesbians were targeted as security threats, just like communists. Essentially, 5,000 people lost their jobs from the federal government, and by the mid-50s, 20% of Americans trying to get a job had to go through some sort of sexual questioning in order to um, uh, hold on to your job. Thousands were interrogated uh, for their sexual conduct, and failure to answer, of course, meant you were you know, guilty as charged. Um, there actually are, if you, in, the, in the congressional record, which is more fascinating than you would ever assume, um, questions like, you know, how hairy were his balls? Can you imagine a whole bunch of guys in, like, straight ties, like fedora hats, having that? You know, having this sort of like a barrage of them, you know, with somebody under like that, that's actually what they would do with federal employees who work for the State Department. In 53, President Eisenhower signed an executive order barring gays and lesbians from working in the federal government. And, it, and, uh, and by, 19, uh, by 1958, they, uh, most of the workforce was being uh, interrogated. I want to move on more quickly. Oh, and in some parts of the country, you would just have absolute um, mayhem. Uh, gay men, uh, the hostility just approached a sort of realm of hysteria. And in fact, in one town in 1955, there was an extensive investigation of gay men in none other than Boise, Idaho, which of course is known as a gay mecca, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, I know when you, when you live in San Francisco and you like you can spit in any direction and hit two dikes with three kids, um, it seems like the world is like that. But Boise, Idaho, Idaho, then and now is not a gay mecca, but nonetheless they wound up hounding 1,400 people out of their jobs. University of Florida went through a similar uh, kind of dragnet. Um, it was a misery. I want to move on to um, the resistance moment because sex wars have always met with resistance. The first ever ongoing gay political group formed in the early 50s, in 1950, in fact, on the beaches of Los Angeles with former members of the Communist Party, led by Harry Hay, who left the Communist Party and helped form the Mattachine Society in this neck of the woods. Um, uh, uh, Del Lyons and Phil Phyllis Lyons and Del Martin formed the Daughters of Belitis, but really they, they were a fairly tepid uh, politically um, uh, uh, bunch, reflected some of the politics of that era, and it really wasn't until the late 1960s with the explosion of uh, of militancy, largely among LGBT people uh, who had taken part in the anti-Vietnam War, the black civil rights struggles, and on and on. Um, I write about uh, a great length in the book about the Stonewall riots and the importance of it, because really it wasn't the first riot. The first, the first riot that we know of that, we, that, uh, of that era was here in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco of transgender uh, uh, women who rebelled against the cops and actually formed for a brief period of time a group called Vanguard. It didn't last very long, but why we remember Stonewall and why it's so important is not just that there was a riot that um, gained solidarity from much of the left, from, from the Black Panthers, from the, uh, the, 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 the Young Lords, which was sort of a Latino variant of, of the Black Panthers, from socialists, from all sorts of groupings of people. is because there was ongoing organization uh, after that that we have reaped the benefits of um, to this day. Um, I want to, um, I want to uh, say something about... Um, the, you know, the Gallup polls of this era, because nobody actually asked any questions about people's opinions about gays until 1977. That's the first time that there are any figures in the United States. Gallup began asking that question eight years after Stonewall. It took them a while. Um, they said 27% of the American population approved of gays as teachers. 51% agreed with gays serving in the military. Interesting, back in 77. Yes, you're good enough to fight and die for empire. 26% um, uh, said that they would vote for a gay man to be president. I don't even think they ask that question anymore. Um, and, and, of course, all of these figures today are well in excess of 60%, and some of them as in em employment uh, equality or 89%. So the figure, you could see the impact of these struggles, massive. Um, I, I want to say something about the shifting gender norms of the 1970s, because by the 70s, the majority of women worked, they had disposable income, and their demands reflected newfound freedoms and confidence. Two of the major gains of the women's liberation movement both occurred in 72 and 73. One, of course, Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision allowing women to control their own uh, reproductive functions, thus allowing us to be autonomous human beings, and Title IX in 1972, which meant that the federal government would no longer support your educational institution if you didn't have equal access to women uh, for, um, for athletics. Now, this had a profound effect. Um, not just on civil rights, but on women's bodies. Um, you look at, um, I mean, just the participation in sports went up by 1,000% among black uh, uh, teenagers, 800% uh, or something overall. Uh, and the social impact of Title IX cannot be in any way, shape, or form uh, uh, lessened. I mean, I, I was seven when it came out, and, and it, it profoundly impacted my life. But you look at the earnings potential of, of girls who play sports, um, their intolerance for domestic abuse, um, their, uh, all of these things, all, you know, uh, the, the, the 
you know, the women's confidence, on and on. But you, you even look at the, at the photographs from 30 years ago of women athletes in, you know, high school yearbooks or college yearbooks. Then you look at, you're looking at girls in uniforms. Now you're looking at athletes in uniforms. Women's bodies have been thoroughly transformed. Um, and this, it, it gives you a sense that uh, out of, uh, you know, that social, uh, civil rights struggle not only changed laws, but actually physically altered our physiques and, uh, and our vistas. And I want to get into a little bit about the 1980s before I bring this to a close. And actually, there's a headline in today's paper. I'm sure many people around the country have ignored it. Um, economy hurts government aid. Uh, for HIV drugs. They now have, for the first time since there have been HIV drugs, which the FDA approved protease inhibitors, which is popularly known as the cocktail, which friends I know who are gay who like cocktails never refer to it as the cocktail. Um, but uh, uh, this is the first time since there has been uh, a way of living with AIDS that people are going to be denied um, drugs to save their lives in the wealthiest country on the face of the planet, um, thus rendering that waiting list now um, that, as of today, is 1,800 people, not into a waiting list for drugs, but a, a death list. These are the people who are likely to, um, to not live from what is a survivable disease. And anybody who is old enough to have remembered the late 80s and early 90s in this country in which you watched your friends and you buried your friends, young, um, you know, fit, strong people uh, who deteriorated within months and year, I, I, I'm terrified to see the social retrogression that another generation may actually see in this country. I mean, of course, it is absolutely ravaging Africa because any disease that is spread through sexual contact inevitably is going to reach the wider population. And now most people, even in this country, who have AIDS uh, or HIV are black and brown women. Um, but this is now a death sentence uh, once again in this country. And this is, this is about the priorities of the system. But the, the, the actual um, uh, the, 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 the sex panic that went out, and a president who refused to even utter the word AIDS until the seventh year of his eight years in office, Ronald Reagan, um, you know, uh, the refusal to do anything really led to um, the explosion of activism, uh, groups like uh, ACT UP, Queer Nation, things like that. I was very active with those groups as a socialist in New York. I'm quite critical of many of their uh, politics in some ways, but certainly the activism transformed the way this country looks at AIDS and the way people with AIDS are treated. Um, but really, you, 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 you you get a sense of um, each of these periods of repression have led to um, periods of resistance. I want to I bring um, this um, discussion, this talk, to uh, a close to open up a discussion by asking some basic questions and trying to pose what I think are some answers. Because, you know, the, the question is often posed to me, can capitalism allow for an end to sex and gender norms? Um, can homophobia and transphobia be eliminated under a system of profit and competition? I think the shifting economic needs that created both repression and resistance have broken down barriers and changed consciousness, yet the ruling class still fights us every step of the way. That's a fact. It is quite possible and even probable, in my opinion, that LGBT people will win full formal equality under the law in this society over the next years that a majority of Americans will come to reject homophobia and even transphobia. But the ideology from the top can persist long after the laws change. As we all know, we have a black president and racism uh, runs through uh, the fabric of uh, every aspect of American society. Contradictory forces are at work to both create liberatory possibilities and constrain them at the same time. And I believe that sex, gender, and sexuality will continue to be contested terrain so long as a tiny minority that controls capital needs to find ways to divide us. So long as the profit motive reigns supreme, which is the essence of capitalism, they must 
try and convince us that the state is not responsible for providing child care or paid leave. They must continue to separate out the reproduction of humans that happens uh, in the privatized family sphere from the production of goods in the workplace. The ideological and material stakes in the system are simply too high. It would cost $11 trillion, according to the United Nations estimates, to actually pay for the unpaid labor that is mostly female labor in the home. They have got to drive through gender norms, sex norms, and the traditional nuclear family um, in order to basically continue to get away on the cheap for what ought to be social uh, uh, needs that are paid for by the state that are foisted on to us uh, privately. And, uh, you know, I I, I, I will go on in the discussion, but I I won't hear because I want to open things up and hear what people have to say and questions that, that, that people have. But I think that we can see all these changes in our lifetimes. I mean, you know, I... I, I find it inconceivable, you know, I, when I spoke in, in Chicago two weeks ago, uh, an elementary school teacher described that there is now the first, to her knowledge and to my knowledge, gay-straight alliance forming in that fifth grade um, as a result of the protests. I mean, you know, I was like the only out lesbian at Northwestern University in the mid-80s, you know. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like going to, a, you know, one of those little 20 speakeasies to go to a lesbian rap group, you know, uh, in 1985. Um, now you have, you know, things wide open. I mean, things are changing rapidly and, 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 and tremendously in terms of women, uh, gender expression, all of the rest of that, and yet they fight us every step of the way. And I think that we have to understand that our out-of-the-closet existence as gender-variant people, as sexual whatever, uh, uh, you know, others, uh, you know, uh, who define norms um, uh, uh, can exist. The system can allow for, these, for, the, for this fluidity to exist on some level, but will continue to pound away at us because there are material realities that the system needs to drive through. There is a plan, which is why you see this summer, in response to what is likely to be a decision that will come down in our favor, perhaps in the next few days on Prop 8 here in California, that there will be an explosion from the right already, the National Organization for Marriage, that much you know, maligned institution that is under attack, are going on a tour throughout the country to go protest to save the sacrosanct institution. They will fight us. And it's not just a few right-wing groups. These people are funded by the most powerful people in this country, not just the Mormon church, but people with serious economic power in this country. They understand the economic stakes as well as the ideological stakes, and we must understand them too, which is why for people who want to fight for a different kind of sexuality, a free sexuality, a different kind of society in which ordinary people, in which women, in which men can just simply be themselves or be neither or be gender queer or whatever the fuck you want to be and screw whoever it is you want to screw. You cannot separate that struggle out from the material struggle against a system that crushes our lives and would like to turn us into dust. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.